This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. Bill, Chris, it's good to see you guys. Good to be here. And uh, I'm also thrilled to see our special guest today, Zoe Green. Hello. <laughs> How you doing, Zoe? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Thanks for joining in. Thanks for Hopefully having me. You can uh, course correct us. We're going to need it. Oh, I have so much practice in that. 18 years, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, so I thought uh, thought we'd start today by by looking at the psalm for the week, Psalm 139. And uh, well, I'll, I'll just read it and we'll we'll go from there. I'll kick it to y'all. So Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me. You've searched me out and have known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You trace my journeys and my resting places. You are acquainted with all my ways. Indeed, there is not a word on my lips, but you, O Lord, know it all together. You press upon me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go then from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make my grave, my bed, if I make the grave, my bed, you're there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light around me turn to night. Darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light to you are both alike. Search me out, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my restless thoughts. Look well whether there be any wickedness in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Perhaps you caught it, but the lectionary this week omits part of this, and so I think I'm just gonna read it for us and see, <laughs> see, see what is omitted. Starting in verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. O oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously, and lift themselves up against you for evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Thanks be to God. Yeah, well, I guess I can see why those that text was omitted. <laughs> Growing up, I hear about heaven, and I hear about a place that's far away from earth, that we're, we're getting out of here, we're leaving, thank God. And it's a place, I always laugh, it was always described as a place where I was allowed to have all the things that I wasn't allowed to have here. 
Right. So there I could be excited about being so rich that even my streets are made of gold. Mm-hmm. And you know, the more the more I behave, the larger the bay window is going to be overlooking the sea of glass. Right. Uh, it came across, I would say, as a little elitist. And then hell was always threat and final and very punitive. We hear David and he's like, yeah, I make my bed in heaven and I make my bed in hell. And there's almost like a, uh, a daily interaction with the two where for me growing up, those two things, heaven and hell, were like they were final destinations. They weren't daily realities that I would make my bed in mm-hmm. every day. And so, you know, something tells me knowing what we've learned and knowing you that there are some not so good ways to talk about heaven and hell. And there are probably some better ways to. So what would you say if somebody was going to be talking about Psalm 139 and, you know, talking about heaven and hell? What are some not so good ways of talking about it that are deeper than the the sort of jokey ways that we could uh, poke fun at? But what are some ingrained, holistically bad ways of talking about heaven and talking about hell, would you say? One one thing to name is... And it'd be interesting to hear what Zoe Zoe's experience has been. Hell was maybe the central doctrine for the spirituality I was given. It certainly was central, if not the central idea or teaching. It was central to all of the teaching for reasons I'll I'll come to in a moment. We're now in a time where everyone has kind of has kind of moved away from talking about it. So we've gone from talking about it really poorly destructively to not talking about it at all. Yeah. Or not knowing yep. how to talk about it at all. I don't know. So what, what's your experience in terms of what you've kind of picked up? Not, not from me, but just in the air, so to speak, what do you think people are saying or what have you heard about heaven and hell? If anything, I would agree that I think people have moved away from it. Like even my friend who's, I probably talk with the most about this kind of thing. And she's the most honest about it. And once you bring that up, she'll never, she'll talk in like, what's the word where you like implying? But suggest? You're not, yeah. So she'll suggest, but she'll never like come out and say anything to me about what she thinks about any of that. And mm. I don't think anyone else has either. Mm. Except for like grandparents who are like you're talking about <laughs> with the other generation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. no, yeah, like with my generation, I feel like I, it's all suggestions. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting probably a year ago, kind of out of the blue, Clive brought that up. Does everyone who's not a Christian go to hell? I think that's the way he asked it to me. Does everyone who's not a Christian go to hell? So it's still there, but I think Zoe's right. It's my, my sense too, is that it's suggestion, but it's not central to most of our church's teachings anymore. In some ways that's good because what we were saying was disastrously bad as a rule. But in other ways, it's it's a different kind of problem. We've just exchanged one failure for another because I do think we need to talk about not not only because Scripture mentions it, but because Christian doctrine, both about heaven and about hell, these these teachings matter, and we ignore them to our hurt, or and we distort them to our hurt. But we need to talk about them. We need to be careful to talk about them well. Which I guess that's your question: like, how do we talk about them? Well, I mean, you know, like making your bed could be a term of like, you know, it could be a global term of like final destination, like, you know, 
you say to somebody after a long, long time of decision making, you know, you made your bed, now you got to sleep in it. But making your bed could also refer to like a daily interaction with something. I always had the sense that the way we talked about hell as a final destination is a little bit insensitive to a lot of the world that is in things that we would say are hell on earth. And so I thought I, I've always been intrigued by I've heard more now corrected about heaven being a daily part of our life, but I haven't heard much more about how to talk about hell as a more common reality. So, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in those thoughts and I'm also interested in how you think, you know, Jacob and his seeing his ladder, Paul talking about creation's groaning and Jesus talking about the enemy that sows sea uh, weeds and tears into his field, how these things help us talk about heaven and hell the right amount of time and the right way. I, I do think we still have a sense of, by we, I mean, Pentecostals do have a sense of that ongoing conflict and hell is a part of our lives. I, I do think we talk about it pretty haphazardly and confusingly, but I think that sense is still there for most of us, right? That hell is against us. The evil forces are, are being unleashed against us and against the people we love and the things that we love. The first confusion, maybe, maybe let's start with this. It's, it's kind of hard to know where to begin because there's so much to talk about. I, I think recognizing that heaven is not the condition God is in is a, is a primary truth. We, we imagine, I think, and again, Zoe could speak up here if she wants I think all of us are taught either explicitly or implicitly God is in eternity. Like we are in time. God is in heaven. Like we are on earth and he's conditioned by the environment of heaven. And we're conditioned by the earthly, the worldly environment. The differences between those environments, heaven and earth make certain difficulties for God that he has to overcome to save us or that we have to overcome to be saved. And that's not, made up from nothing. I mean, there are ways in which scripture does talk about God being in heaven. And again, the Lord's prayer that we pray every day, hopefully every day, we are praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But right, God is conditioned by nothing but God. God is a place all by himself and to himself. Heaven is a creature. So heaven is the space God has made from which to work in and among us. And Robert Jensen is so helpful here. And, and he draws particularly on this text from Genesis as to, to illustrate his point that what Jacob finds is that heaven is locatable, right? That there he can build a memorial there. This is the gate of heaven. And so it's not natural to God to be in heaven, but God graciously inhabits heaven in ways that bring that grace to bear on us as we need it in ways that are good for us. And that, that by the way, is where the doctrine of angels fits. We need a doctrine of angels because we need creatures who, for whom heaven is natural and they are participating, cooperating with God in God's care for us. So I don't want to get, I don't want to throw things off here, Chris. I mean, feel free just to edit this out if you want, but I track that God is God's own condition God's not conditioned by anything else. But then it sounds like you're saying that God humbles God's, God's self to inhabit 
heaven. How is that different from? Yeah, I, I would never say God humbles himself like that because I, I think God is humble. He doesn't like move in and out of humility. Right. For God to work within limits doesn't limit God. It deifies the limits themselves. So when God creates heaven to care for us, he charges heaven with his own life. He doesn't limit his life to the extent or conditions of heaven. Mm-hmm. God is not changed by the creation of heaven any more than he's right. changed by the creation of earth. And by the way, this is another confusion. Like we, When we say heaven and earth, we don't mean sky and ground. Yeah. We get at it in the creed when we say we believe in God, maker of all things, visible and invisible. Yeah. So heaven is a way of naming in invisibility and not not just invisibility in the way that you know, subatomic particles are invisible to us. Right. But things that are essentially they essentially belong to a different order, mm-hmm. an order that lies outside the realm of what we would call science. And the locatable, what's, is that how, is that the word Jensen used? Yeah, yeah, he, like heaven has an address. In fact, he gets this, interestingly enough, he gets this notion from a Jewish theologian named Michael Wiskograd, which is that God has a home address mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. And what Jensen says is God has, because of the embodiment of Jesus being universally present to us, like God can be located at any time or any place as needed mm-hmm. that, that all of creation is touched by heaven. Heaven is present, fully present wherever creation is, but as needed, heaven can open up. This is what we say happens at Jesus baptism. Yes. What the gospels say happened at Jesus baptism, the heavens open and he hears a voice or when Jesus is born, the heavens open and the shepherds see and hear the angelic choir. Mm-hmm. those realities are always ongoing. Mm-hmm. Like scripture talks about the windows of heaven or the gates of heaven or the doors of heaven. Right. So I think what we're getting at, right, with those metaphors is a sense in which heaven is a reality unto itself that's that's fundamentally different from ours. It's not, it's not simply invisible you know, in a optical sense. It's not like hard to see. Mm-hmm. It literally cannot be seen. It, it cannot be investigated in that way. It's, it doesn't belong to the order of things that can be scientifically researched. Mm-hmm. Right. It It is a reality God has made that is, exists sheerly in service of that which can be seen. Now, we, I do think you can investigate That's helpful. the ways in which the heavenly impinges on the worldly, <laughs> the earthly. Mm-hmm. You can never get at the invisible thing itself. Yeah, and Chris, I think I, I heard you talk about this uh, in a class once where you mentioned, I think you used, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think you used words like, there are scientific words like origin or starting point. Creation is a faith word that even if you saw the beginnings and the origins of something, you, it still wouldn't prove creation. And then I think at the end you said there's termination and then there's like the Christian word consummation or revelate or, or restoration. Those yes. words that we use, creation and restoration, are categorical to the work of God, not necessarily scientific provable realities. Is that that's exactly what I'm saying? Yes. That there is the work of God 
on creation. There's the work of God in and with creation, and the heavenly belongs there. Like angelic work belongs to the work of God with and in creation. Right? Angels are not co-eternal with God. Angels are made. Heaven is not co-eternal with God. Heaven is made. And it exists for the sake of us and vice versa. We exist for its sake. I mean, we're, there's a mutuality between the heavenly and the earthly, the visible and the invisible, all of which, you know, Jesus embodies. And so much of our, so many of the problems we've had, theological, apologetic, philosophical, are, are simply the result of confusing these categories. I'm imagining heaven as a space somewhere up from us. Like, you know, I've heard, I've heard preachers say, you know, heaven is in the north of the universe, whatever the world that would mean. Of course, heaven is not spatially removed from us at all or temporally removed from us at all. It does, it is a reality unto itself for our sakes. And it, until we get kind of clear about that, I, I think we'll keep stumbling into confusions about how God's agency interfaces with human agency, how eternity interfaces with time, how the heaven, how heaven interfaces with earth and so on and so on. Like, you know, it'll, it'll be mythological term. Like we'll, we'll have a mythological conception instead of a theological one. So, all right. So in the, in the text with uh, Jacob falling asleep, you have heaven making an appearance in a place where he is that surprises him. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then in the parable of the weeds, you have hell making an appearance on earth where Jesus has to, you know, he has to explain like these, these tares are the sons of the evil one. And it's making an appearance right here in my field that I planted. And in Ro- in the Romans text, you have creation seeming to be caught in the battleground, like where these two realities are happening. So what, what does it mean when heaven makes an appearance here, like in the Jacob ladder story? And what does it mean when hell is making an appearance here? And what, what are like, so we're sitting here on earth, living everyday lives, going to work, people probably listening to this in a traffic jam right now on their way home from work where, you know, in a daily way, we can feel these heavenly realities and these hellish realities colliding in part and parcel limiting and much larger, you know, whether you're talking about your daily life or you're talking about the isms that we hear about on the news. And we're sitting here in the midst of, you know, forest fires in Canada making a smoky mess thousands of miles away and also just outrageously good things happening in our churches and in our communities on a regular basis. What both of these realities of heaven and hell are showing up in, in these, in these texts for Sunday. And they're surprising to the people who are hearing them. Hey, why is it surprising when heaven shows up? Why is, why do we need, why does it need to be explained to us that hell is showing up? We talked about heaven and hell so poorly, so destructively for so long. Mm. We created a blowback in which you couldn't talk about them at all. You could only, as Zoe's saying, you could only suggest them or imply them. You don't, state them outright. And so now we're living with years of not having talked about it at all, but still having the the traumatic memory of having talked about it hurtfully, talking about it in ways that harmed others, harmed us. 
I think that's a reason that we need that it seems disorienting. The other is is a broader problem, and that is a like a a problem as broad as whatever it is we mean when we talk about Western culture. We lost meaningful ways of we cut ourselves off from meaningful ways of talking about reality. Believers and non-believers did this. We we convinced ourselves that we could talk about reality as two-tiered. So we we've for a long time now inhabited a world in which we think there are things that are real, that's accessible by science. And then there are things that are real to you, and those have to do with your opinions. And at the end of the day, your opinion matters most, right? Like what, if you want to be a flat earther, you know, it's, you're entitled to your opinion, right? You have a right to your opinion, even though we could do all kinds of research and prove that that isn't true. But what we can't imagine is that when we talk about God creating, we don't mean God is the first cause in a chain of causes that made this world as we know it come into existence, we don't have categories for creation or the heavenly. We don't, God, if, if God exists at all, God exists as one being among all the other beings. He's just the most powerful being of all the beings that exist. And if heaven is real, it's real in the same way that Beacon, New York is real or Cleveland, Tennessee is real. It's real in a locatable sense like that. It's somewhere in the universe. Our imaginations are just fundamentally broken. We re- we kind of gather all of our faith opinions, or gather all of our beliefs or doctrines into the category of opinion. Like, I mm-hmm. believe in angels. I believe in God. I can't prove it. And, and we, we often say this, this line, think about how often this comes up. If you could prove it, it wouldn't require faith. So what we're saying is there's stuff you can prove and then there's stuff that's about opinion and preference. And faith belongs there. Beliefs belong there. Beliefs about God, beliefs about angels, beliefs about heaven, beliefs about hell, beliefs about miracles. Like All of those things belong inside of opinions. That's one mistake. The other mistake is to say, no, all of those things are absolutely real. And we can prove it. And that's where you get the apologetics industry that, that tells mm-hmm. you, you know, look at all these miracles that have happened. This proves that God is real, or this proves that there is a heaven, you know, so on and so on and so on, right? It becomes a kind of ghost hunter, Bigfoot mm-hmm. quest for celestial beings, you know. And that's what happens when our imaginations are broken in the way that they are. Like we, we do, we're conceptual, we're almost incapable conceptually of thinking in the ways the tradition has actually taught us to think. Just musing at this point while you're talking, jotting a few notes down, it's interesting, and this is not exhaustive, but it seems like a lot of the encounters of heaven in the Bible happen in dreams or like out in desolate places where somebody's having some sort of like experience they happen often in the presence of Jesus himself, like at his baptism, Mm -hmm. like on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, like 
on Easter Sunday in in his presence as absence in the tomb, heaven is kind of making an appearance with angels and things like that. And then I think especially in the Gospels, evil, hell, is seen almost exclusively in the presence when the presence of God is there, whether it's Jesus in the wilderness and then Satan is seen or Jesus crosses the river walks out of the boat and immediately there's this manifestation of what's been going mm-hmm. on. So what is it about the presence of God that re- reveals both of those to us? I think there are times in which heaven breaks through to us. I think there are times in which we essentially break hope, break open and we get in touch with heaven. So I, I'm not going to share Zoe's story. It's not mine to share, but one of the things that Zoe has shared with me during a time of therapy, feel free, Zoe, if you want to talk about it, but in a session, in a therapy session, kind of breaking open and having this experience, this vision that I would say that was seen into the heavenly reality, like seeing what's real in heaven's terms, Mm. right? It happened for her. Do you want to speak to that? Sure. Um, I think actually like I have, I've done like this type of therapy a few times and anytime that it works, like anytime I leave and I'm like, Oh, that worked. And I don't just feel worse. Um, it has been like that kind of experience. And actually like in the thing we, in what we read today, which I'm not as well read in in things as I should be for having a theological father. So this, I actually like had a vision of this and then read this and that's happened like a few times or like I haven't read, but like today, there was one that says you press upon me behind and before and oh my gosh therapy is so hard to talk about um but i had had like a vision going back and doing one of those moments where like i just couldn't stand or see like or breathe but not in like necessarily i don't know exactly what it was but i just couldn't like function my functions were just shutting down and my senses were shutting down and i was going back to that memory And what had happened is like, I had like, I send like my older self now back. And what she had done is just like come up behind my younger self and like stood behind her and tried to hold her up that way. And like kind of brace her that way and then come in front of her and blocked what was coming at me. And then like kind of cradled with me. And so as soon as I read that, that's like what I thought of from that line. That's yeah, that's astounding. That's not even the experience I was talking about, but that's exactly the kind of thing I'm describing. When my grandfather died, he died on Good Friday and we were flying back, but we didn't make it in time to to be there with him when he died. So on Good Friday, a few hours after he passed, I went from the airport to his house where his house had been. A tornado had destroyed it, but I went to where his house had been to the barn where I had learned to pray with him as a kid and I went there to pray. I mean, I had this incredible sense of his presence to me, my grandfather's presence to me and that he was praying. What I knew was that he was now even better prepared to pray the prayers he had always been praying. Like he was positioned, so to Mm. speak, to pray purely what he had always wanted to pray and had already begun to pray, but he had become the prayer that he had been praying, that he had taught to me. That's heavenly reality in which things are brought to their fullness. 
it's a cre- it's a creature being able to be more fully present to itself because in heaven God's presence has made made it so that creatures can can reach that fullness in a way that it's impossible for us to reach it under these conditions. So heaven has to open for that to happen. And I, I think that that, as I was saying, sometimes it happens, so to speak, from heaven's side. Paul on the road to Damascus, like the heavens open and there's an interruption. But very often it happens by our initiation, either through and usually through sorrow. Not only, I think there's a way in which you can have experiences of sweetness or joy or happiness that are so intense that they essentially open you up to heavenly reality. Well, in Jacob's story in today's text, it's the sun has gone down. I mean, I think that's a very key part of the story when it says when the sun had set, he's on the run. When the sun had set, it's very arbitrary. He picks up a stone in a certain place, lays down in a certain place. I think it says the phrase place like six times. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like in that place of setting sun on the run, no no home to go back to, no home to go toward. There's the there's the revelation. Like in that place, what, could you almost say in that hellish place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly what the psalm is saying. And and notice in that text. So you're right to point out the place, the the language of place. What. What happens is he dreams, and this is what I was going to say in terms of heaven opening up to us. We're most truthful with ourselves in our dreams. We're, we're most truthful when we're not able to, when we aren't controlling what we're saying to ourselves. Yeah. But our hearts don't lie to us unless our hearts are deceived. Our hearts never intentionally lie to us. I don't think that they can intentionally lie to us. Our hearts can be deceived. And if they're deceived, then they are misleading us. But if if our hearts are not deceived and we get in touch with our hearts when we're asleep, that's when our heart is able to speak to us because there's not too much noise. But notice he dreams that there's a ladder. He dreams that there are angels ascending and descending, but the Lord is standing beside him. The Lord doesn't come down the ladder. God doesn't need the ladder that's touching earth to descend to Jacob. But he's already nearer to Jacob than Jacob was to himself. Right? What the Lord needed is for Jacob to be awakened to what's already real. And once he's awakened to what's real, he's aware of the presence that was already there. So the point of the latter is not to make possible God's access to him. I mean, God doesn't need access to us. It's it's to make possible our awareness of the God who's standing with us. Can I say a couple of things I'm thinking about? Please. You yeah, can also cut to. this out. I won't be offended because I'm not sure if it makes sense. But when you're talking about like similar things keep coming to my head, Brewer, did you see what I almost did? I went, oh, and I stopped myself immediately. I made, I did that yesterday and I realized you do that. So now I, I have this? to not do it ever again. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so one time I think of like when you open like when I've been open to like the heavenly or something like that, as I also think of like when you just realize like things are wrong, like when you're the way you think the world should work, isn't working how it's supposed to work anymore. And now you're like, well then what? Because now I don't know. So like, you're also kind of like listening, I guess, but like 
you're just out of your own ideas of what this is supposed to be. And I was thinking about this earlier with Bill's question too, about like the way, why do we talk about heaven and hell in the way that we do? And I feel like at least from the like people that I've heard talk about it and it's been in my life, it seems like it's become this way of like making the world black and white and make sense so that like we can live easily. Mm. So like from mm. my perspective, there's this one thing where I have this thought of like, which I know this comes from living a privileged privileged life too which is why i think like this kind of christianity can get away with it a little bit but it doesn't work which is that like i have this thing sometimes where most of the time i'll tell myself like bad things aren't going to happen like what's the worst case scenario it's not that bad and then sometimes things hit me and like oh in this scenario it really could be that bad like i don't know what's going to happen and so i live in this thing of like i'm really nothing really serious is going to nothing really bad is going to happen nothing evil nothing cruel is going to happen to me and I'm going to be okay. And I think that we see like this in the way we talk about heaven of like, if you pray it, if you pray enough, you will like get out of the hospital or like, if you're a good enough person, that bad thing won't happen to you. And if a bad thing happened to you, it's because something bad was in your heart and it's a punishment or it's a lesson. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know if it's an American thing or where this is gotten from, but like, we also think the way I've heard hell talked about is like a punishment and also a justice to get back yes. at that person. Yes. And I've been thinking about that a lot recently. Like what does justice even mean in this scenario with God? Like, and how does that even happen? Cause like we, we do need justice for people who have done wrong to us, but like you can't get justice by just going back and doing what they did to you and all those things. So I think when people are using heaven and hell to like do this justified of like good things are going to come to good people and all that. And it actually clashes with, like that idea of like um, punishment and justice clashes with a lot of the things that I feel like God tells us to like go to the su- like everyone will I feel like everyone I know would say that God calls us to the suffering, and yet they'll say that God made people suffer who deserved it, right? And right. so we don't need to go to them because that's their punishment for what they did wrong, mm-hmm. and so like we don't need to be with them. Anyways, that's what no, has been like circling in my mind. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think this is exactly right. That I, one of the reasons we we talk so poorly about heaven and hell is we were socialized into a Christianity that was meant to make our lives meaningful. It, it was a kind of it was socialization into a moral framework, a moral and political framework in which heaven and hell became names for the difference between good and bad and what happens to insiders and what happens to outsiders. That's not Christianity though. I mean, it's the Christianity a lot of us were Christianized into, but it's not the faith that was delivered to the saints. It's not the tradition. And I mean, there are points in which it veers close to the tradition. There are aspects of that that I think are true that we want to affirm, but not that vision as a whole, not that moral framework as such. But if you take that moral framework as such, then absolutely heaven becomes a cipher for all of the wonderful things you're going to be rewarded with for making the right choices. And hell becomes a cipher for all the horrible things that are going to happen to you because you made the wrong choices. So this is, I mean, this is like just me and my own personal can't wait to hear what you have to say about this thing. So don't disappoint me, Chris. I have like a cosmic question and i don't want to be disappointed um in in the parable of the weeds 
Jesus says, like the 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 tares are sown by the devil and they are the sons of the evil one. And then he's saying, let them grow together. Yeah. And he says, if you try to uproot them too quickly, you'll you can hurt the wheat. And we know, I think we've all experienced, maybe many people listening have experienced the pursuit of behavior modification doesn't work the way that the people pursuing that think that it does. And you end up damaging the person. Yes. Severely. Yes. Trying to make them right as fast as possible. Like we, we know this. I'm sure you could do 10 podcasts on that uh, in and of itself. But what is the, when he, when he's so aggressive to say the tears are the demonic, the sons of the evil one, things that bring destruction what does let it grow together mean? So, again, we have to read all that Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Matthew together, right? We, we can't isolate this particular text. And as we talked last time or the time before last, so much of what Jesus is doing in Matthew is ironic. Like you, you have to attend closely to realize you know, when he tells the disciples, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. Well, it has, but the secret turns out to be that it's hardest for those who are closest to know what's really happening. And that is a secret of the kingdom that they've been given. So there's, there's irony there. And I think Jesus is cautioning the disciples against thinking they can make these separations, these moralistic separations between good and evil the way that they think they can. I mean, jump to the end of the gospel. The sheep and goats are sorted. Notice they're not already sorted. They have to be sorted in the end. Mm -hmm. Because if we did the sorting, we would not end up with all the sheep on one side and all the goats on the other. We cannot tell the difference. Only he can tell the difference between the sheep and the goats. Only he can tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. And I think this, the gospel of Matthew is making this point over and over and over again. God's ways are not our ways. So if we go to Isaiah 55, that passage, my my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. That statement is about the mercy God is showing to evildoers. The reason God's ways are beyond us is that, is that they are more merciful than we can imagine. This is the point of Romans 9 to 11 as well, right? God has included everyone in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. I, I think it goes with the lectionaries, uh, Romans eight comments, even, even a few weeks ago, Romans seven, I think like there is a fleshly way to view this text. There's a spirited way to view the text, just like there's a fleshly way to view the tears in me versus a spirited way, the tears in you versus a spirited way. Right. And so I, I can, I can see, I guess, and I'm not saying you're doing this. There's just always my concern with these conversations is there, there, it's hard to discern, like, wh where's our responsibility here? Like, where is, so, so these, the people in the field, I can relate to them very well having this conversation. Like, what do you, what can we do? We need to do something. That's what we're here for. That's what you hired us for. We're here to do something. There's obviously something bad in the field. We want to do something. And he's saying, well, don't don't do anything and oh by the way the part where you would do something is really the end of the age right yeah. so what do we do like what is our role 
But what do we do? Creation's groaning. Jacob is having a dream. What do we do? I, I know there's like this back and forth about, is there a call to action? And I know that so many sermons have been all about a call to action in almost a militant way, and that's not healthy. But good news is announced. But then what? Like, what is our role when we when we read a text like this? Mm-hmm. That makes me think about, Bill, what we talked about the other day when you you would talk to me about just like the way that marriage works and like how you both have to show up. And we talked about how that, like, I think that might be a nature of how, like what a human being, like how human beings are supposed to live and what's good by us. And I think like you're looking, also probably looking for actual like tangible answer, which I'll leave to my dad after this. But like, it makes me think that something about uprooting the weeds and also killing the wheat while we do that goes against our humanness. Like our human role is only like, I don't know what like this means, but like in theory, like our human role is only to be the farmer or like the sun needs to keep giving its sunlight and the rain needs to keep raining and watering all of that. And like, you just do your piece and then like leave what is God's to God. And like, if you try to like take a role that like of punishment or deciding who deserves that punishment and who doesn't and all that kind of stuff and condemning and deciding what's evil and not, you'll end up just corrupting yourself, trying to bend to rules that don't fit your creature. So I, I, I hear you hundred percent. I think we talked about this when we were talking is I think we we've all, we all agree that like go back to 2020, 2021, when there was just like this huge influx of a conversation about racism and those evils, there were people saying, this is not like, we just have to leave this up to God. Only he can sort this out. And that voice was getting called out on the carpet regularly as not a healthy voice, as not a healthy thing to say. So there's, there's a part of me that agrees with that idea that like, there's only things that God can sort out here. And the minute I put my hands in what he's supposed to be doing, I'm going to hurt it. But how does it not become the voice that says, well, there's, you know, there's a lot of injustice against, you know, different people and women and things like that. And so, but God's going to sort that out at the end. Like we, we can't do that. That's not a healthy, I assume that's not a healthy stance to take if it is. So, yes, let's be very, very clear. This parable is not license to be indifferent to the suffering of my neighbor. It's not a license to accept my own sins, the evil that I'm doing. I don't get to keep doing and say, well, Jesus will sort it out in the end. Right. I must put away that evil. And I must do what I can to care for those who are being damaged by evil. But I think if you if you look closely at what Jesus says the explanation is, Brew, do you have that in front of you? Can you read Jesus' explanation? Because I want to comment on... Yeah, Brew, you... I was just saying, sorry, I exited out of it. Bill, if you have it, go ahead. Then when the crowds left, they went to the house and the disciples came in saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered... The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. (laughs) So far, so good. I'm tracking Jesus. (laughs) The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Slowly getting more confused now. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, 
so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. And Chris, I love this this right here. All causes yes. of sin and yes. all lawbreakers, in that order, I think that's intentional. Yes. And throw them into their fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, don't miss that. You have to listen because what I'm saying won't make sense if you don't listen carefully. Like take heed how you hear. But notice, we no one. I mean, goodness. I hope no one believes that sinners aren't God's creatures. Right. He's, in in this parable, he says the wheat; those are the righteous. the The weeds, the tares, those are the sons of the evil one. So whatever we're naming there, we're not naming their creatureliness. So one way of getting at this origin talks about it. There's Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus. That man, Mm -hmm. as the betrayer of Christ, he's the son of perdition. He's the son of hell. Yep. So there's Judas, the man, then there's the son of perdition. And what Jesus says is it would be better for him never to have been born. He means the son of perdition should never have been born. Not Judas the man. Whoa. Because if you say it the other way, that Judas the man should never have been born, then God's not his creator. Whoa. If Judas, should, if Judas the man should never have been born then God cannot be trusted. But if we take Jesus as Origen says to mean the son of perdition should never have been born, what we're saying is this should never have had to have happened. Right. This this evil should never have been possible, should never have been thinkable. But because of the causes of sin, because of evil and the powers of evil, because of those the gone wrongness of the world, the son of perdition was born. And Judas was eaten up by this identity. The the man Judas got lost in the son of perdition so that Judas couldn't tell the difference. This is exactly what happens with the man called Legion. Of course, that's not that man's name. We don't know that man's name. Right. But he had so eaten him up that he came to be identified with the evil that was consuming him. Hmm. So what I think is being said here, and in Matthew 25 with the goats, God doesn't create evildoers. And everyone God creates, God creates good. But evil can so consume who we are that for all intents and purposes, we cannot tell the difference between the son of perdition and Judas, between Legion and whoever that man actually was between the goat and the sheep, between the tare and the wheat. Only God can do that. And the only way that that can be done is by separating out the causes of sin from the doers of sin and then bringing all of that into the consuming fire of God's life, which is what the last judgment is, right? It's God's, the fullness of God's life happening to the the entirety of creation and to all that has gone wrong. That's why we need the doctrine of hell. We need 
a doctrine of the the fury of God's wrath against the son of perdition, precisely yeah. for Judas' sake. Because you could argue in a overly simple... Well, no, you can argue, I don't think this is simplistic at all, that when all causes of sin is thrown into the lake of fire, there can't be lawbreakers anymore. People are freed from being that that person, that legion, that son of perdition in that moment. And Judas is Judas again. The 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 man is the man again. What does Eustace say in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? Like, I'm finally a boy again after the, the dragon skin exactly. comes off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Precisely. And that's a great, great illustration of it for those who've read Chronicles. So I, I think there's still room for Christians to disagree about what happens in that moment. But I don't think there's room for Christians to disagree about this. When the judgment of God happens, there's no more deception. Evil no longer has any hold on us. The causes of sin are destroyed. So when I am perfectly clear about who God is and who I am and who you are and what I did wrong, what my wrongs did to others how God made those right, if I still want to turn away from God, how is that possible? It won't be because we're deceived. It won't be because evil has such power over us that we can't see the truth. We will see the truth about who God is, who we are, who our neighbors are, what we did, how God responded to what we did, what grace made of our failures, and so on. We will. Every knee will bow. Like every knee will bow. Now, at that point, who knows? But I think Baltasar is right. I can never imagine anyone going into hell before I do. If any scheme I have in which I'm imagining other people rejecting God is already hellish. That's a hellish scheme because it's an accusation. It's levying something against others. But we do need to be able to say with the doctrine of hell that all causes of sin, all sin... All that the damage sin has done, all of that is going to be fully dealt with, right? Like no, nothing, nobody's going to get by with anything. You know, God's not going to wave a hand over our memories so that we forget what went wrong. You know, the abused are not going to be forced to cozy up to their abusers because God wants everybody home for Christmas. Like it's it's in no way cheap reconciliation. It's either the putting right of all wrongs or it's tragedy. I think Bill had to run. But, I mean, I think just to go back to kind of your final point, I mean, again, even with there being room for debate, it feels like it it has to be that way. Otherwise, God cannot be trusted. Like if, if everything is not dealt with entirely. Yeah. How else could we trust that God can deal with anything? With, with anything, right? That's right. And I, I think what we have to say is we don't want a moral framework. We want the justice of God. We don't want God to have set things up so right and wrong are objective. The rules of the game are clear, and now we play the game and we win or lose. Mm-hmm. We are not set in a moral framework. We live and move and have our being in him. We're, we're ultimately judged by the living God, not by some external standard. Right. External to God and external to us. Mm-hmm. That's our hope. Right. But it's also, make no mistake, it also means we will give account to holiness. And therefore, there's no cheating. There's no, there's no loophole. 
Like I can't get by with anything. If you give me an external moral framework, I can find ways to manipulate that. Right. Casuistry. Exactly. I will find the loopholes. Yeah. If, if you let me make the law a matter of interpretation, if I, if I take the law in a fleshly way, then I can manipulate it. Mm-hmm. But when you think of the law as the word of the living God, there's yeah. no manipulating God. There's no way to be casuistic with the, the living word. Right. So I'm going to answer for every lie, every half truth, you know, by every word I spoke and didn't speak, every action I, t- I took and didn't take. Mm-hmm. And, and that the depth, you know, who I am in depths that I don't yet understand. I mean, there's so much more to my life than I know. Most of my life remains hidden from me. Mm-hmm. My motivations, my desires, my intentions even. I don't know myself terribly well. God knows me. Right? And that back to the song, search me and see what is in me. I, I, I think at the heart of prayer is this awa- enough self-awareness to know you don't know yourself very well at all. And yeah. a readiness to trust God to search your depths that are dark, but not evil. One of the mistakes we make is, is identify the language of darkness as language of evil. But in the Psalm, right. when it says, you know, the dark is light to you, I was formed in darkness. That, that, that's not a way of talking about evil. It's just outside of my knowing. It's not evil. It's just too deep for me. Mm-hmm. And all of us are too, are wrapped in darkness, right? We, we don't know ourselves very well at all. And the better we get to know ourselves, the better we sense how little we do, in fact, know of ourselves. And trust in God in some ways comes down to, can I let God access those depths of me that I cannot access? Yeah. Will I let God get at my deep heart, the the core of who I am at my Mm -hmm. motives and fears and desires and ambitions that are hidden from me, except perhaps in, in, and that even seems like one way of reading the Psalm, right? I mean, absolutely. Like the, those words that are omitted is this kind of there's depths being plumbed, including fears and motivations. Yeah. Kill, right? Kill these wicked. I hate them with a perfect hatred. And it's like, and then immediately search me, oh God, and know my heart and test my thoughts. That's right. It's, it's sort of like, here's what comes up within me. I'm aware of it, but God, I, I, I recognize that I need you to sort through this. That's right. We hate the son of perdition because we love Judas. Yeah. I I don't want to belabor the point, Chris, but it it does strike me that part of the challenge for us in a kind of refusal to think about law in a kind of abstract way and to kind of recognize that what we will have to answer to is nothing less than God is that it takes power away from us. Yeah. Right. Because I can enact a law how I interpret it and how I see fit. And I can use it as a kind of framework through which I make my judgments. Um, Yeah. I mean, what we're talking about, that's right. What we're talking about is we're not meant to be autonomous creatures. We're not self created, self naming, self fulfilling creatures. We are creatures of a God who is our fulfillment, who is our fullness. Mm hmm. And I don't. I wouldn't say that our power is taken from us, because 
was never ours. It's a power we are trying to take that we can't actually bear. Right. That's good. Yeah. 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 We're, we're not, and it, we are being made to bear it. I mean, that's the thing. God is not withholding power from us. Mm. He's holding power for us, not withholding it from us. It's like a prodigalization of, yeah, we're, we're grasping for it out of time. Yeah. We're, we're we're insisting on having it when we're not ready to have it. It is destructive for us to have it. Setting us free from the causes of sin. To go back to that language in the gospel, like that mm-hmm. becomes until those causes are dealt with, the lawbreakers can't be dealt with. And until lawbreakers are dealt with, and that's me, not you, me, I have to be dealt with. Until I'm dealt with, I can't be ready to share the work that he's he means to give me to do. Yeah. Zoe, last words? Okay, okay, yeah. You need to you need to read read this poem talking about the son of perdition. Lauren Hill. Yes. Yes, so it's Lauren Hill. When the son of perdition is commander-in-chief, the standard is thief. Brethren, can we candidly speak? Woe to the men trusted in the chariot's den. Leaning on horses, they run their intellectual sources. Counterfeit wisdom creating the illusion of freedom. Confusion consumes them. Every word they speak it turns them outwardly white. Internally, they absent of light. Trapped in the night and bonded to the cane of the night. Under the curse, evil men waxing more worse, faxing the first angelic being cast to the earth. It's time for rebirth, burning up the branch and the root, the empty pursuit of every tree bearing the wrong fruit. Turn and be healed. Let him who stole no longer steal. Oh, it is real. Surrender for Jehovah is real. Okay, Lauren Hill. <laughs> yeah, instead of, yeah, yeah. That, what else is there to say? That That is it, right? It's the... Our hope has to be in the Lord. He has to be real. And his reality has to impinge on the stealing and and the thief and those who are stolen from and the world in which thievery became imaginable and in some cases unavoidable. Mm-hmm. God has to happen to all of that in order for justice to be possible. Mm-hmm. I feel like the last part of this is just exactly what you guys were talking about. Yeah. It's so good. Angelic being cast to the earth. It's time for rebirth. Burning up the branch and the root. The empty pursuit of every tree bearing the wrong fruit. Turn and be healed. Let him who stole no longer steal. Oh, it is real. Surrender for Jehovah is real. Yeah. And that it's only possible for the one who stole to turn from their stealing. If God is happening to the causes of sin. Again, our, our hope is... God making right what has gone wrong. And in the meantime, we strive to accomplish that in ourselves. Back to one of the questions that Bill asked earlier, what do we do? We we try to let that happen in our lives. I'm not going to try to separate the wheat from the chaff in you, but I am going to ask God to do that in me as much as can be done. Yeah. But I, I must not do it even to myself. Like I must not think, I, I must not imagine that I can tell the difference. I, I simply have to be present. Back to the psalm. How does it end? Search me and know me. Not even make me to know myself. Right. You search me and know me. And that that's the you know Lauren Hill line. Surrender. Openness to God. 
openness before God, that's what will open us out toward heaven. Mm -hmm. Chris, would you pray us out? God, help us. Amen. Amen. (laughs) 